Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can drop me an email to techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. And speaking of Instagram, I put up on my stories the other day that I am taking part in Run in the Dark on November 14th. Uh, That is a date that it's taking place in Dublin. There are other events which we'll mention in just a quick second. But for those who don't know, Run in the Dark is an initiative that's been running for the last number of years. And it was established by my next guest, Mark Pollock. Mark is an explorer, an incredible speaker and a founder. Mark has been blind since the age of 22. He then went on to become an adventure athlete competing in ultra endurance races since 1998, despite his blindness. However, in 2010, he had a fall from a second story window that nearly killed him. He broke his back and the damage to his spinal cord left him paralysed. What is an unthinkable or multiple unthinkable devastations to an individual has become the cornerstone of the work that Mark does and he is with me now. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I've met you a few times over the years and I always leave our conversations feeling inspired and motivated and just generally good. Um, I said there that I'm taking part in Run in the Dark on November 14th. But for those who don't know about Run in the Dark, will you just tell us a little bit about it and also where the money goes to? Thanks, Jess. Yeah, well, look, Run in the Dark is a global 5 and 10k running event that happens in 50 cities all around the world. And in the middle of November every year, 25,000 people pull on their running shoes and go out to run in the dark and support me with my mission to cure paralysis in our lifetime. So it's happening in Dublin on the 14th of November and then everywhere else in the world, the 50 cities, uh, it's happening on the, the 15th of November. Yeah, and it's such a good initiative because you know the money is going towards a mission. And this is a mission that you've spoken about quite a lot. Can you tell me a little bit about the progress that you've made in terms of that aim of curing paralysis over the last number of years? Yeah, this has been going for 12, 13 years now. And over that period of time, we have been able to create collaborations that are now worth over a hundred million dollars and i'm not suggesting that we raised a hundred million dollars through run in the dark but what i discovered from the early days when i was still in hospital and and i was just going to go off and meet scientists and technologists and see if they could come up with a cure and maybe bring those people together and and see if i could come up with a cocktail of interventions that would allow me to get out of my wheelchair and, and and walk again. What we actually discovered was that there's loads of science going on in research labs all over the world, loads of interesting technology in the research world behind the university walls. And what the real challenge seems to have been is getting those research breakthroughs out of the universities, into startups, getting those startups funded, and then most importantly, getting those research breakthroughs into a viable product that can end up in the clinic and start to impact people's lives. So it evolved from the run in the dark evolved from just me 
funding me to go off and meet the scientists to, uh, and be a, a human guinea pig through to this $100 million project where we've helped uh, uh, a group of research scientists to commercialize their spinal stimulation technology. Yeah, and I suppose the notion of taking stuff out of labs and academia into the real world can be slow to happen because there are human beings involved and there are tests and checks and all the rest that have to be done. Um, but can you talk me through some of the innovations that you've been involved in, with in terms of testing over the last 12 or 13 years? Um, yes, I think it would all be easy if there weren't any humans involved uh, in any of these endeavours that would be out in the world, no problem, because this is one of the, the difficulties that with human beings in the mix, there are uh, egos and agendas and incentives, all, all necessary because we're working with world-class people who are investors or scientists or, re- or researchers, and their brilliance comes with... Um, stubbornness in an, uh, to an extent and there's fragmentation and what we're trying to do is create the conditions for collaboration to see where they can all get what they need out of the endeavor to um ultimately create solutions for paralyzed people but i started with the basic principle that sitting down is not good for you particularly if you're paralyzed so aggressive physical therapy which wasn't much of a you know it's not a big reveal that moving is a good idea and then that physiotherapy rolled up into a set of exo, uh, exobionics robotic legs, which are kind of, I mean, they just didn't exist 10, 12 years ago, and now they're pretty commonplace. So motors at the knees and hips, a computer on your back, a, a, an exoskeleton frame, uh, all generated and powered with artificial intelligence, motors, sensors to allow people like me to stand and walk. Uh, but that's not a cure. That's a, a rehab tool. So then looked at the next most available intervention, which was spinal stimulation, an external device to sh- supercharge the nervous system like a mobile phone booster um, to excite the nervous system and allow for voluntary movement. So combining exercise, movement through robotic legs, spinal stimulation to allow for voluntary movement is sort of was moving through the most available accessible interventions that i could get to and now those technologies are starting to move to the idea in the research lab of implanting the spinal stimulation using soft robotics using brain machine interfaces to combine the intent from the brain to stimulate the spinal cord um to work within an exoskeleton, let's say, or soft robotics, and kind of closing the loop to have the brain, the nervous system, the muscles, the external interventions all working, all working together. That seems to be where we would kind of get towards some kind of a cure. Never, never mind, by the way, the the biological interventions, which will come some way down the line. I find it fascinating uh, if you or if anyone has ever met Professor Luke O'Neill uh, or if you hear him on the Pat Kenny show every Thursday, you get a real sense of the innovation that's going on in the world of science. And it is incredible what they can do. But I also think the use of technology is fascinating as well because the rate of change is just stunning. And I wonder, have you seen a speeding up in terms of 
an idea going from a post-it note to being tested out you know has it has it ramped up a little bit or is there still not quite red tape but is there still a very cautious approach because again there are humans involved uh let me try let me pause to give it to try and think of a shorter answer rather than the massive uh, <laughs> answer to that that question you know human beings particularly in the US were being um I, and I, I think this I think the story Although you need to fact check this, I think the story was people were being given syphilis and then being test tested for it without their knowledge. Um, you know that that clearly is not on vulnerable people um, in the, in the states. So the FDA in the states, the regulation around testing on humans is absolutely enor- enormous, rigorous, and necessary. But what we see with that with that regulation is a slowing down of what we know to be true. So in my case, or in the spinal world, standing frames to, to allow people to start, just stand, just get up out of the wheelchair and stand, no no real technology. Those have only been approved as best practice in the last five, six, seven years. Now, they have been helping people who have been paralyzed for 40 years. So by the time we are doing things in practice that then become be- best practice in, in the system, um, the delay is absolutely enormous. So when, when you have something like an exoskeleton, in the hospital system, the exoskeleton standing and walking is not best practice. Yet, I did an experimental uh, research study with an exoskeleton, which are very expensive. You know, they cost... Um, We now have a centre set up at DCU where we have two exoskeletons and a neuroscientist and a whole research programme going on around the exoskeletons and the use of those exoskeletons and the impact of the exoskeletons in a, not in a research environment really, in a training environment so that 200 walking sessions are available per month to people to stand and walk. But it's, it's, Walking a tightrope between knowing it to be a good a good thing and not not really dangerous in any way, versus it having to be researched to the nth nth degree to become best practice to say to everyone, hey, it's a good it's a good idea to stand and walk if you're paralysed. So those are the the exoskeletons are really very. Um, there's no major intervention, but when you start to get into spinal stimulation that's on the skin that could produce damage and then the idea and the research researchers looking at implanting those devices well then we're into a whole world of regulation that slows that is has the potential and, and genuinely will slow the impact of these devices down to to a degree that a lot of people won't live long enough to um to feel the benefit of these these technologies, so there's there's definitely a, a balance I think to be to be had between best practice that the healthcare system can stand over and say yes this will really benefit your life or it'll get you off you know medication or it'll help you in some meaningful way versus what needs to be done at the fringes the the sort of exploration 
piece. And the way I the way I think of it is, we, we always need people working at the fringes, exploring what's out there, and then if there's something that's useful, we then need to get that from the fringes and bring it to the mainstream as quickly as possible. Is there an appetite in the medical world to embrace the stuff on the fringes or is there a reluctance or an apprehension because if it is a catastrophic failure, it's, you know, that individual's failure. It's associated with them. You mentioned ego there a few minutes ago. Reputation is obviously incredibly important. Um, So have you seen that the hunger and the want for the innovation in in terms of the medical field? Uh, Yeah, well, I I think on from my own experience, I had my accident. I was in a hospital, and when you have a spinal cord injury, you as the person with the injury doesn't want it to be true. And the people by the hospital bed, your part, your partner, family, friends, they don't want it to be true. And the person, the person who puts the metal work into your back to stabilize the bones, the spinal cord, or the neuroscientist that is involved in that process in the hospital. They're such experts at that moment in time that not only do we, do we as injured people expect them to stabilize your back, but we also expect them to know everything about what's out there in terms of potential cures. And it's not, it's not fair. Well, during the process, you get angry when they're saying, well, you know, I don't know, or I think that sounds too too risky to go and use a spinal stimulator or to stand in a robot or to even go and do aggressive physical therapy. So I was angry for a long period of time, but I wasn't angry, or I shouldn't have been angry at the people who were trying to help me because they were they're in the business of putting metalwork into your back. They're not in the business of sitting in a lab doing experimental research studies. They're they're different people. So we need we need the people at the moment where the injury happens, the whole healthcare system, the physiotherapy people, the people who are getting you back out into the world. And they're necessarily different from the researchers. The way I think of it is the people in the system, the hospital system, are helping you to accept the new life that you're about to enter into in a wheelchair and the researchers, well, they're all on the hope side of the equation. So um, I've softened my stance over the last uh, decade uh, to not expect too much from each of the different groups that we're dealing with. Uh, Put it like this. I wouldn't want some of the experimental researchers trying to put metal work into my back to stabilize the spine after the entry. So I shouldn't expect the uh, the surgeons in the hospital to know all about the research studies. Yeah, and you're offering incredible insight and perspective that I suppose is needed. But it also highlights the work that you guys are doing with Run in the Dark because you as an individual, I suppose, are a bit of a bridge between the two worlds. And you're highlighting and identifying what's going on in the two camps and trying to find a way to, to make them marry. I wonder if your accident were to happen today, do you think things would be different in terms of the treatment you received at the time? You know, has enough innovation happened 
or are we still at the same st- same stage, but there's an awful lot of innovation going on in labs and research centers? Well, w- when I had my when I had my accident in 2010, we were only reading about exoskeletons at that st- uh, in the in the in the spinal injuries magazines. You know, you were, you were able to read about interesting wheelchairs and the possibility of robotic legs about to arrive. You had to go to the scientific research journals to find out about electrical stimulation. Now we see exoskeletons available in in many places starting to move into the early interventions for rehabilitation and we're starting to see in the popular media um, articles and, and interviews around electrical stimulation of the spinal cord. So it's it's moving, it's moving along, but it's it's desperately slow. And in fact, the, the the big the big thing that I've learned over the last decade is that uh, the problem of the problem of fragmentation uh, or the systemic fragmentation that we see right across the system it's it is that that's slowing down all of these interventions. It's it's a bit of the system. It's a bit about the people within the system. So my my effort has really switched to creating the conditions for scientists and technologists and funders and business people and investors and charity people and patient advocates to work better together to fast track the cure for paralysis. So moving from a research breakthrough taking 50 years to get out into the clinic, moving that from 50 years to 10 years would be a leap forward. And it comes from those uh, one-on-one small group interactions where a billionaire speaks a completely different language from a computer scientist and mm. or a robotics engineer. And how do we how do we find language where we can find common ground to move things along a bit quicker because the billionaire thinks that the the robotics engineer or this the neuroscientist is just doing is slowing things down by asking too many research questions the scientist or the technologist thinks that the billionaire just wants to make some money off of the breakthrough in the, uh, that they've discovered and isn't asking enough research questions but in fact what we need to do is is perhaps raise the ambition to allow all of the scientists to ask all of the questions they want to ask and allow all of the billionaires to generate the returns that they need for their for their money. So um so I'm focusing more on in fact being more ambitious about this topic, uh, to try and give all of these very, very successful people the room and space they need to win. I feel like everyone needs to win. And it comes from raising the ambition, not not lowering them the ambition. Yeah, you're so right. And I think, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show today, a lot of the news that's going on and in the world at the moment, I've just been feeling a bit powerless because you see all of the problems in an Irish news and in a global news context. Um, and I like to be part of the solution. I like to be a fixer. So if you're listening to this and you're like me and you're wondering what you can do, you can you know, reach that ambition and help Mark and his team reach that ambition by taking part in Run in the Dark. Uh, you can sign up on runinthedark.org. You can volunteer if running isn't your thing. 
But Mark, it really does matter, doesn't it, that, you know, individuals can get behind initiatives like this and pay your entrance fee. And if that's the extent of what you can do, it is adding to the wider cause. Well, it, it, it is because we, we're dealing with we're dealing with a problem to cure paralysis. It is many, many hundred million dollar projects. We're not going to raise that through run in the dark. I'm not going to do it on on my own. But by 25,000 people coming together every year, paying their entry fee, sometimes some of them do do some uh, fundraising along, along the back of it. But with that relatively small amount of money, what we can do is find the people who have the hundred billion match them with the scientists who need who need the 100, 100 million um, and get them to work together. So with a relatively small intervention, we can make a huge impact and we need to replicate it 100 million, 100 million, 100 million at a time. Okay, well, you can head over to runinthedark.org to sign up now or support in any way you can. You can also make a donation if you're not able to take part. The full information is on the website. Uh, Mark Pollock, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you.